Welcome to the Search the Scriptures podcast, where we dive into scripture and provide the explanation of it in the most accurate light that we can. Search the Scriptures is a podcast that is dedicated primarily to the Christian, challenging our brothers and sisters along with ourselves to see if we have set aside the commands of God to set up our own traditions. To do this, we use scripture to explain scripture. Please join us on this journey. So we are going to continue our study in the Epistle of Romans, and we are going to continue today in chapter 8. It's going to be chapter 8. Just to get a very, very brief recap reminder, um, we finished chapter 7. We saw, or we studied, and we saw the, the dilemma of the conflicting natures, right? And we saw that very famous um, passage or portion of scripture was where Paul is basically despairing and and Paul is basically um, questioning and and almost conveying a sentiment of of depression because of the reality that though he has a new nature that actually identify him now, which is a nature fit for heaven, fit for Christ, and in Christ, and now having imputed righteousness um, as well, he he still struggles um, with the fact that the body itself, because the body is not redeemed, the body itself is still subject to the sin that works through the members of the body. But the difference is, right, that it's because the body itself is not redeemed. It's not because Paul himself or the believer himself has a split personality, a dual personality, still has a fallenness to him or her. That's not the case, right? The new creation is 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 perfect in the sense of that you already, that new creation, that new creature that will one day um, reign with Christ. You are already that new creation that has been adopted. It has been made uh, sons and daughters of God. Um, so that is that is already who you are. That's the new identity. That doesn't change. So you cannot be already a creation. You cannot be someone, a being that is fit for heaven, while at the same time still being sinful, at the same time still being fallen. That's, that's not who we are anymore. But the body itself, it's not yet redeemed. The body itself is still um, in a state, a downward state towards death, right? That's that's one of the signs that we know that the body itself is not redeemed. And that's why one day we will be given a new redeemed body. So just kind of doing that as a brief reminder, we're going to continue on now to chapter eight here. And basically what Paul is going to do here is... He's going to give the result. Basically, what he has been teaching throughout the first seven chapters, right, starting with the fallenness of mankind, showing how all of mankind, doesn't matter who it is, what tribe, um, what culture, um, where you're from, what end of the earth you're from, that you are guilty under God, to them giving the 
the gospel and giving the solution to then saying how is it that we receive it by faith right um to then saying explaining how righteousness is imputed to then saying how you were once subject and slave to sin and you had no other choice and that being your nature to then being purchased killed because you die in order to then be married to um christ your new master and actually going through all of that now he's actually going to give the result what is the result of everything that i have been explaining through the first seven chapters and i say the first seven chapters for our purposes right because our bible is divided um in chapters and verses but remember that when paul was writing this he was writing a continuous letter right he was just running a long letter with one train of thought from beginning to end um and and it was always a continuous right thought that that he was that he was um conveying so now he's saying if you can see here in the first verse therefore normally we use that term or that verb when we're going to we're about to give a conclusion um right but here he's basically giving the result right he's not concluding a letter because we do know that the letter continues on but he is giving the result of what he just explained and what is that result is very clear he makes it very clear therefore there is not now no what no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now, that is absolutely essential. That is very, I mean, of the utmost importance because, I mean, that is a staggering result of what Paul has teaching has been teaching for the first seven chapters, right? It's the fact that there is no condemnation, which because we've already read through the beginning of this letter and through the first seven chapters, we know what that condemnation entails, right? We know that that means being under the wrath of God. That We know that that means being a son of wrath. We know that that means having the wrath of God poured out on us because we are not, and I'm talking about the unbeliever, right? The unredeemed, because we are not under Christ who he already poured out his wrath on um upon and then his righteousness is imputed to us and the penalty is paid through him but if we're not in that state right if we're not in christ jesus how it says here in this first verse it means that you are under wrath right so that's why it's very important and we understand exactly what he means when he says there is no condemnation this verse here alone it's a verse that literally removes, it just takes off, drops from us, from our shoulders, a huge weight, right? The thought, the knowledge of the fact that we deserve hell and that we are going to suffer for eternity and to know that that is not the case anymore for those who are in Christ Jesus, for those of us who are in Christ Jesus, the believers who have accepted Christ, and have received the free gift of salvation that is the best news that we can receive it might, if, if, if there's if there's anything that we want to look in the bible in the word of god to give us peace to give us joy to give us something to be thankful for here it is the fact that 
we know if we want to dig in right as to the why or that how that happens that's what the first seven chapters did but the result what is what is the statement of fact is this no condemnation it doesn't exist it is done this overwhelming grace because of the basis of this overwhelming grace that we have received from god we don't have to worry about i mean quite frankly right put it without sugarcoating burning in the lake of fire for eternity with his wrath being administered through eternity on us and the term condemnation is 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 actually used in judicial settings as well and basically is the exact opposite of justification right and and that's one of the things that paul discussed throughout the first seven chapters is the doctrine of justification and we went over that but this is completely the opposite right because condemnation what it entails is getting that guilty verdict and then starving out getting the penalty imposed that the verdict demands that's that's condemnation that's to be condemned to then be handed over for your punishment to be administered justification is exactly the opposite right because though it's not entirely being declared not guilty in the sense that we weren't not guilty because we were we were guilty but instead of being handed over to serve our penance or our penalty or to the punishment to be administered we actually got righteousness imputed to us and then we were pardoned that's the word we were pardoned therefore justified so the complete opposite opposite of the justification and the result of this is to be condemned and is to be actually handed over to the punishment that we deserve and that is what is going to happen to the unbeliever that is what was hovering over each of us before we came to christ sometimes we don't we don't think of these things as you know with the degree of seriousness that we should attribute to it because that is the reality that was the fact we were living every day each passing day every 24 hours with the risk of dying with the condemnation and the wrath of god over us that was our state we know that tomorrow is never promised we know just using simple logic right we know just looking around at things that happen in the world but we also know because the bible itself tells us that tomorrow is never promised so that is how serious we have to see these things we actually have to see the fact acknowledge the fact and understand the fact that every single person out there walking that is not in christ jesus and has not accepted christ literally is walking to the sword to their neck it's literally walking with the wrath on top of them waiting to be poured out that is the state that every unbeliever walks in and that is why it should be so imminent and there should be that impulse or that or that um that just being stirred up or we should have that feeling of really longing to see souls get saved and people get saved and to really share the gospel because it's not just about 
getting people to know Jesus. It's not just about getting people to church. It's not just about, you know, um, getting people to feel, get out of depression. And it's not just about, you know, helping those out who are going through some dark times. No, it's actually, the fact is, the reality is that it is about rescuing them from the wrath that is to come, from the wrath that is hovering over them each and every single passing day. That's the reality. And that's why this statement, this statement of fact in the first verse, it is absolutely so liberating. The fact that is, the fact that tells you that is no longer your case. That is no longer the reality. Now it is actually completely the opposite. Though we know that tomorrow is never promised, though we know that we could die at any time, what actually awaits you when that happens is eternal life. What actually awaits you whenever that does happen, when, when it, whenever you do die, is actually an eternity with Christ. Joy, no more tears. Completely the opposite of the wrath to be a minister, right? That is the state of the Christian. And that is, that is why the Christian is called upon to always, well, one of the reasons, right? One of the reasons why we as Christians are always called upon to be joyful, to have peace, to be grateful always in thanksgiving and always giving praises to God. Sometimes it's hard for us to understand that, especially when things are not going well, when things are not going our way, when we might be going through hardships or trials or struggling or, you know, life is life, right? We're still in this world, living in this world and with all the things that come with it, right? We still face all the hardships that come with it. And I would argue that as Christians, we're actually supposed to face even worse trials because the Bible tells us that then we will receive trials because of the fact that we are in Christ Jesus, because of the fact for because of him, we will actually suffer, right? Because they hated him, they will hate us. So, but even in the midst of all those realities, you can start really making sense. How am I supposed to have this joy? Well, how am I supposed to have this peace? How am I supposed to always be giving praises and thanksgiving, even though everything might seem like it's going wrong? It's because of this. It is literally because of verse 1 in chapter 8. The fact that there is no longer any condemnation on you. The fact that you will no longer be, be um, thrown into eternal darkness. You will no longer face the wrath of God. You're actually inherited eternal life. That's what should give us joy and should push us to always be grateful and give thanksgiving to God no matter what happens. And... Is, is, is next next verse here to keep um, going with the letter says for the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and of death I want you to notice and, and maybe you can, you can go back later as you're reviewing things and studying on your own time you will notice that the spirit 
has not been mentioned much throughout the first seven chapters. And when I say the spirit, I'm not talking about the spirit as far as the spirit of man, right? Um, I'm talking about the actual spirit, the Holy Spirit. You will notice that this chapter will have that staggering difference because the spirit will be mentioned many times. Because remember, we do, we do know that it is a triune God. We do know that all three persons play a role in this entire plan, right? And we are actually now seeing more of the spirit and the spirit's role being involved in this chapter. We see that it tells us for the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and of death. The spirit, the Holy Spirit, noted that it is written with a capital S, right? The Holy Spirit frees you from sin and death. Now, I don't, I'm not saying that to usurp the role of the son, right? In his sacrifice and pain for your sins. What I'm saying is he, the Holy Spirit empowers you to be free from the law of sin and death. Because what is the law of sin and death? The law. What do you mean by that? God's law. But what do you mean that God's law is the law of sin and death? Because it is God's law that sets the standard and that condemns us because we can't measure up to that standard. And then we are judged based on that law that we have broken, every single one of us. And the only thing that we receive is death through it. Again, he's gone over all this through the first through the first seven chapters, right? That that is that is the reality. That is the law, the the standard by which we are judged. But the Holy Spirit frees you now and enables you, and we also went over this as well, enables you and empowers you to obey the commandments, empowers you to fulfill God's law. Before, we had no choice. We couldn't please God. We couldn't. We were in utter opposition to him. We were in complete disobedience to him. We were hostile towards God. Now that we have been indwelled by the Holy Spirit, we actually get the means, or as I, as I called it before, the tools that enable us to actually obey the law and fulfill the law. And we'll see here, I'm not going to jump ahead, but in, in later verses, we'll see also that the Spirit changes our nature. It grants us strength for victory over our already unredeemed flesh. So the things that we saw, that struggle that we saw at the end of the last portion of chapter 7, of the clash, right, between the spirit and the flesh. Now, let's, let's, let's always identify which spirit we're talking about. It's not the Holy Spirit that was fighting and having that struggle with the flesh in, in the end of verse 7. The Holy Spirit has no struggle. The Holy Spirit does not need to contend with the flesh. It's not even a fight, right? They don't get into the ring to box. 
the flesh, the devil himself, all demons, all principalities, all the uh, all the powers, uh, right of of Satan, all everything, all evil, everything is powerless before God. And when I refer to God, I refer to the only one God in all of His three persons. So there's never gonna be a fight where the Holy Spirit, you know, where, where the flesh is giving the Holy Spirit some work. And they actually have to go to battle because somehow, you know, the Holy Spirit has to struggle a little bit. No, that's that's not the spirit that's struggling with the flesh. It's our spirit, the one that is struggling in the sense that our spirit, the one that is willing yet is contending with the impulses and with the little domain that sin still has over our unredeemed flesh. That's the spirit that is struggling in chapter seven. It's not the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit. It's the one that empowers our spirit to crucify the flesh. The Holy Spirit is the one that empowers our spirit to beat the flesh into submission. He is literally the helper. He has been called the, help, the helper. And that is one of the ministries of the Holy Spirit. I say one of the ministries because another ministry of the Holy Spirit is to illuminate the scriptures to us. And give us understandings of the scriptures. But the Holy, now that we are indwelled by the Holy Spirit, now we have and we get the strength to actually live and walk according to the word, according to the spirit. That is what walking in the spirit means. Walking in the spirit is not this mystical thought or this mystical idea that we're out there right almost like waving our hands and using the force and beating demons from every bush and speaking in tongues and doing all these signs and wonders that's not what walking in the spirit means walking in the spirit means walking blameless before the lord walking in his statutes and in his commandments and walking in obedience to his moral law that is what walking in the spirit means because you are being led by the spirit that is empowering you to walk in that way. Walking according to the flesh is actually a state that an unbeliever cannot be in anymore. Now, why is that? Because that's the state of fallenness that no longer applies to you. That's the state of slavery to sin that Paul already told you and told us that you have been freed from, that you were killed, you died in order to be risen again, in order to then be married to Christ. You can't go back. It's irreversible. So like, that's why I mentioned that the idea or the expression and sometimes we use it, whether it be by ignorance or by what we're used to, what we hear, right? We use the terms, a Christian will use the term, I was in the flesh. Or I got in the flesh and did this or whatever, right? That's no longer a state that you can be in. The being in the flesh, walking in accordance to the flesh is being unsaved 
the Holy Spirit, and this we'll also see in later verses, also confirms our adoption as God's children and ultimately guarantees our ultimate glory or glorification. So these are things that the Holy Spirit does. These are the actual ministries of the Holy Spirit. And yes, the Holy Spirit imparts gifts as he sees fit. There are gifts given to the church for the edification of the church. We're not doing away with those things, right? But again, it's like we can't lose the true focus of what the main point is, of what the true miracle that the Spirit is doing in us that is so easy to take for granted. And honestly, sometimes not even preached enough or taught enough because it's not flashy enough or it's not cool enough. But it's, I mean, this, this has nothing to do with it, but it, it just came to mind. I was having a conversation with, with my parents not too long ago, and my mom asked me, why is it, and again, random thing, but she tells me, why is it that whenever or almost every single movie that comes, that comes out that has to do with demons and exorcisms and all that, why is it that it's always, a, why is it that it's always the Catholic Church and a priest involved? Why, why is it that is that is always the Catholic exorcism? Why why is it that you never see a movie made of a pastor, a Christian pastor, you know, casting out demons? Or why is it that is always the Catholic Church? Well, because it's flashy, right? Because they make it up to be this obscure ritual that only the elite get to learn and prepare and be qualified to do. And it's this battle with this demon back and forth where you have to take all these steps and, and you know, you, where you have to battle with a demon to get their demon's name and this and that. It's flashy. Right? That's, that's, why, that's why you don't see movies made out of what literally Jesus just said to do. Very fast. Just commanded to come out. Right? That's, that's not cool enough. Well, it's kind of the same, it's kind of the same thing with the Holy Spirit. It's almost like there is this over-focus on the things that are flashy and supernatural when the biggest miracle in the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit is literally at work every single day in us. The fact that now you can actually obey God is a miracle on its own because you absolutely could not do that before at all. The fact that now you have the strength to actually beat the flesh. These are things that we easily take for granted. So let's continue. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus, which the spirit of life in Christ Jesus, or the law, right? We know what the spirit of life, but the law is now is the law of faith, right? The gospel. Um, that's what applies to us now. Has yet has set you free from the law of sin and death, which no longer applies to you. For what the law could not do, verse 3, for what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did. Now, very, very important. Let's not confuse the meaning of the wording here. It's not telling us that the law is weak. That's not what that verse is saying. 
verse 3, for what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh. Very, very easy. I mean, almost kind of hard not to think otherwise. Very easy to say, oh, wait a minute. Is it telling me that the law is weak? <laughs> no, that's not what I was saying. How do we know that that's not what it's saying? We know that the law was given by God. We know that there's absolutely nothing, absolutely nothing in the nature of God that is weak. We know already that the law is powerful. So it's not telling you that the law itself is weak. What it's saying is that the law is powerless to produce righteousness in you because of your own weakness, because of your own corruption, and because of your own sinful nature. Again, the first seven chapters give us the context to understand this when we're reading chapter 8. We know that the law itself reflects the nature of God. The law itself is power and is powerful. But it is powerless to save you. It is powerless to give you righteousness because you can't follow it. Because I can't follow it. And I can't obtain it through it. So that's why it tells us for what the law could not do. What did the law could not do? Save you. Impute righteousness in you. Make you righteous. God did. And how did he do it? Sending his son in the likeness of sinful flesh and as an offering for sin. That's the key. That's why it's very important that when we're reading the word, we're reading with a purpose, right? We're reading intentionally. We are meditating in the word. We're not just glimpsing through it. And that's why we ask for the aid of the Holy Spirit to understand and have the word illuminated to us. And, and we don't have to go um, to these because they're quick verses. But if I take a look at Act 13, verse 38, it says, Therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that through him forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Verse 39 says, and through him, him, capital H, meaning to Christ, and through him, everyone who believes is freed from all things from which you could not be freed through the law of Moses. Actually, I think, um, brother, can you take us there? I think it's, it's, it's important that we actually see that one, especially because of that last portion. And that was, was that was Acts 13, 38, and 39. Acts 13. Acts. You said 38 and 39? Yeah. 13, 38. All right, hold on a second here. Chapter 13, 38 and 39. There you go. So let's um, read it together where it says, 
and through him. Wait a minute. I'm, so, I'm sorry. Wait. Yeah, you, you started at 39, so start at 38. Okay, 38, 30. Okay. Therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that through him forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Right? This is the new law. The law of the spirit, the law of faith, the law that comes, the covenant that comes through him, through the Savior, through him. Forgiveness of sin is proclaimed to you in verse 39. And through him, everyone who believes is freed from all things from which you could not be free through the law of Moses. And we can go, go back to where we were in Romans. But you see that it is telling us the clear point that Paul is making. It's not that the law is bad. It's not that the law is weak in itself. It's the fact that you can't be free through it. It doesn't do anything for you in the, in the sense of righteousness and salvation. But God did through the sending of his son. And Galatians 3.10 says the following, and we don't have to go, this is just one verse. I'll read it to you. Galatians 3.10 says, For as many as are of the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Curse is everyone who does not abide by all things written. In the book of the law to perform them. Yep. And verse 11 actually says, and again, just, just, just pay attention to it. Now that no one is justified. Know that no one is justified by the law before God. It's evident. For the righteous man shall live by faith. What is telling you right here in Romans? What did we just read in Romans? For the law, verse 2, for the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and of death. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. It is literally repeating the exact same points that I just made reference to in Acts and in Galatians. And notice how it says, sending his own son in the likeness, in the likeness of sinful flesh. Why is also that important? To the fact that it says in the likeness of sinful flesh. It looks like. What was that? He, like? looks, he looks like us. Exactly. But that's where, that's where the similarities end. Because Jesus is true God. Just as much as he is true man. But you see, Jesus only took the outward appearance of sinful flesh why do i say that because he himself was without sin 
The Bible makes this clear to us. In Hebrews 4.15 says, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. That is a clear distinction that separates man from Christ. Jesus took on appearance. Jesus took on flesh like we have flesh and our flesh. And he lived, empty himself in that likeness, empty himself in that vessel. Was tempted just like we are. But he was not sinful and he had absolutely no sin in him. That's why I said in the likeness and the appearance of sinful flesh, that's where the similarities end. And you see, in God's condemnation against sin was poured out on the sinless flesh of Christ who took it upon himself on our behalf. Let's go to Isaiah 53, brother. If you can take us to Isaiah 53, 4 through 8. Okay. So Isaiah 53, starting in verse 4. Surely our griefs he himself bore. And our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgression. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourging, we are healed. We have seen that verse translated, and by his stripes we are healed. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the, has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter, and like a sheep that is silent before his shearers, so he did not open his mouth. And we saw this fulfilled when he was arrested, taken before the high priest. He was accused. Yet he remained silent. Yet he did not try to defend himself. Verse 8, by oppression and judgment he was taken away. And for his generation who consider that he was cut off at the land of the living, for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due. What an absolute, amazing, and prophetical reference to the Messiah. This is true prophecy. Speaking forth about the Messiah in the time of Isaiah. Let's go back to um, um, Romans. Yeah, I have some quick. Yep. Yeah, I was gonna say that it just popped in my mind as we were reading this right here. 
that uh where it says in isaiah 53 7 where it says he was oppressed and he was afflicted yet he did not open his mouth uh i go back to job who was also oppressed and he was also afflicted and if i scroll up here it says here that the Lord himself was doing this, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. So the mm -hmm. Lord was doing this to Christ, just as the Lord was doing that to Job. The difference between Job and Christ is that Christ did not open his mouth, whereas Job couldn't keep his shut. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> He's like, I don't know why this is happening to me. <laughs> Yeah, he didn't keep his mouth shut the entire time until that last person came up. That's the person that silenced him. But his three other friends, man, he had a he had a rebuttal for each one of them. He would not shut up. Okay, that's an that's an absolute that's an awesome reference. Thanks for that, brother. Yeah, that case in point, right? That's you see the difference between Christ and us being carried out right there, being exhibited right there, right? Whereas whereas Christ did not say a word and remain silent job literally could not shut up about it and, and yeah absolutely i mean that's that's a great reference uh, thanks for sharing that brother and bringing that up absolutely uh, but that's verse four where we are at right now that is what this is talking about so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh uh, i'm sorry verse three for what the law could not do, weak as it was to the flesh, God did, sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh, so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, meaning what was due to us. We, we just saw Isaiah saying that, that that was due us. It was due to us. But he fulfilled it by taking it upon himself, Fulfilling us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit is telling you and is making reference to the fact that it has been fulfilled for who? For the Christian. How do I know that that saying is, how do I know that this is not an absolute blank slate, open salvation and justification for every single human being walking the earth? Because it's qualifying the statement right there. It's making it conditional. What do I mean by that? Well, it's telling us, fulfill in us. Okay, but who, who is us? Those who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. And who are those? Well, we know already because of chapter 7 that those are Christians. We know chapter 6, those who have been purchased and redeemed and ransomed and no longer slave to sin, but now slave to the master, slave to righteousness, those are the ones now walking according to the spirit the christian in other words jesus died for the christian and now again let's let's make sure we know what that means it means that those who accept the free gift which is open right to all of those that are drawn to him and all of those to respond to the calling and all of those who exercise faith and believe and call upon the name of the lord shall be saved those are redeemed those then have the requirement of the law fulfilled in them 
that's what I mean when I say for the Christian. It means it means the fact that that's when you become a Christian, right? But the fact Christian is just it's just the word that we use for the fact that we are believers, we are redeemed, we are the adopted of God. And it tells us for those who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit, for those who are according, then it tells, it's explaining to us, right? Then it's telling us, it's talking again about those who are walking in according to the flesh. Oh, you know what? Let me, let me, before I move on with this point, let me make a point again about the law before I move on. Still in, vor, in verse four, the requirement of the law. We mentioned already, and we talk when we touch about the points of the law still applying and the law not completely being done away with. That is true. It uses the term here requirement of the law. The requirement is everything the letter of the law, the deeds that are required, the do's and the don'ts, what you're supposed to do, you're not supposed to do, the thought put into the law, the demands of the law. That those are all the requirement of the law, right? All those requirements are fulfilled in Christ Jesus. The law has a ceremonial aspect to it, right? That has been set aside. In fact, I want us to go really quick to Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2. And I'm going to go to verse 14 through 17. All right. Colossians chapter 2, verse 14 through 17. Having canceled out the certificate of debt consistent of decrees against us, which was hostile to us. You see how it makes reference to the exact same thing and uses very similar language to tell us what this actually do to us. It kills us. It curses us. Right. That's what the law does to us. And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. When he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them having triumphed over them through him. Therefore, let's pay attention to this. Therefore, no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon, or a Sabbath day, things which are mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Notice how this it says, they can't tell you anything about this. They can't judge you, but this doesn't apply to you. So we don't have this ceremonial aspect of the law applicable to us. We can go back to um, Romans. So, the ceremonial aspect of the law has been done away with, no longer applies, right? We're not required to go before an altar and sacrifice animals to God, right? We're not required to take the blood of a lamb and pour it out, put it over our doors. I mean, we're, we're not required to do any of these things, offer these burnt offerings and all of that. That's not required of us. That aspect is done away with. Now, there's another aspect 
that I'll talk about, and that is the that's the application because there's three aspects of the law that I want to touch base here on. The ceremonial aspect, that's the one that I just mentioned. The civil aspect, right? That's the basic, the basic application of the law when it comes to the community. How did it apply to the community? And the moral aspect, which is the most important one that I'm going to talk in the end. So the ceremonial aspect of the law has been done away with. No more burnt sacrifice, no more sacrificing animals, no more festivals, et cetera, et cetera. The civil aspect has been transferred to human government. And I'm going to jump ahead a little bit here. I know that we're in Romans, but let's go to Romans 13, the first seven verses. And I'm not going to go into deep in this because, of course, we are going to study Romans 13 in detail when we get there. But Romans 13 then talks to us about the civil aspect of the law. And it says, every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. And those which exist are established by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. In other words, it's not those who are doing good who should be afraid of the rulers. It's the evildoers. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For it is a minister of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid. For it does not bear the sword for nothing, for it is a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. Therefore, it is necessary to be in subjection, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience sake. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For rulers are servants of God, devoting themselves to this very thing. Render to all what is due them. Tax to whom taxes due, custom who to customness due. Fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. That is the civil aspect of the law. Carrying it out, the standards of order in the community. Because that, that was also a purpose that the law in the time of Moses served as well, right? Well, that is still in display. We still live by set of rules. And it's telling us that we are to be subjected to those rules. There are people who are in opposition. And again, um, as basic example, we'll go through all the the we'll go through all the challenges to interpretation and all those issues that this chapter brings when we get to this chapter. But it is telling us that it is God who has established order. It is God who has established government. It is God who has established a system for the evildoers be afraid of to be held accountable. A judicial system, a criminal justice system, being made to pay for evil deeds, it tells you right here, it's all established by God. It is a sword to be carried out in the name of God. So, Again, that's the civil aspect of the law. Then we have 
the moral aspect of the law, right? And we can go back to Romans. So the moral aspect of the law is still in full display and application. The moral aspect of the law is the nature itself of God. It reflects his very own standard of holiness. He hasn't changed. Notice how the ceremonial aspect of law and the civil aspect of law were certain rules and instruments and ways that were established to carry out certain things. To apply certain things. But the moral law is the actual very character and nature of God. That's not something that changes over time and with the generations and with the culture, with nothing. And the Bible tells us that God himself does not change. So the moral aspect of the law that was given to us in bullet points, right? The Ten Commandments. Then summarize in the commandments given by Christ. Love God about all things and your neighbor. That is in full application. You see, man, unredeemed man, will still be judged on the basis of that law. Unredeemed man in the church age, in our age, is not going to be condemned because they didn't kill a goat. Or they didn't kill a lamb. Or they didn't go and do the feast and the festival of tabernacles and did all these ceremonial things that were required of the Jews in Israel in those times. That's not going to be the basis for their condemnation. It's going to be their unfulfillment, their disobedience to the moral law. To the thou shalt not commit murder. Thou shalt not bear false witness. Thou shalt honor your mother and your father. Thou shalt love God over all things. Thou shalt not covet. These things are the basis for the judgment. And they're still the basis of the judgment today. And they will be the basis for the judgment at the end of days. And everybody who is unredeemed and is not under Christ is guilty of all. Because the word tells us that if you're guilty of one, you have broken the entirety of the law. So there is no way in, wait a minute, as long as I don't do the worst kind of sin, I'm good. No, you are a murderer. You are a thief. But I didn't steal. Oh, yes, you did. Did you lie? Yes. Well, did you steal as well? Because you broke all of them. Well, I didn't murder. Yes, you did. Why? Did you lie? No. Did you dishonor your mother? Your mother? Yeah. But, well, you're a murderer because you broke all of them. They will be rendered guilty. 
by every single commandment given. And that is the standard. Now, for the believer, now that is the standard of living, not the standard of judgment. That's the key difference. For the unbeliever, it's the standard of judgment. It's the standard for why they will be judged by their deeds. Remember that the, the law required deeds. These that no one will fulfill. They will be judged by their works and their deeds, and they will come short. Now, for the unbeliever, we are freed from that law in the sense of our standard of judgment. We are no longer judged by that law when it comes to our salvation. But now we live by that law. We live by those standards. And now we actually have the capability by being empowered by the Holy Spirit, working together, helping our own new spirit to beat the flesh, to follow that law. That's how all of this comes together. So that's how the law does not and does apply today. Because many times we'll just hear a blanket statement saying we're no longer under the law. And then it's that, that statement doesn't get qualified. Meaning, what do you mean by that? It doesn't give you the specification. Does it mean all of it? Or some of it, it's just we're no longer under the law. And that's where the over, that, that's where the hyper grace and overly freed mentality comes into play, what actually puts you in a very dangerous place. Because then you blur the lines between actually living according to the spirit and living according to the flesh. And I remember that I said you can't live according to the flesh as a Christian. So when there's no way to tell where are you, on which side of the camp are you, it's a very dangerous place to be. Now we're talking in Matthew 7 kind of dangerous place. Depart from me, you evildoer, for I never knew you. You workers of lawlessness. You see the key here? We're no longer under the law. Depart from me, you worker of lawlessness. You didn't want to be under any law. So very, very, very important to keep that in mind. The law and its moral aspect and the standard is the same and still apply. And walking in the spirit for a Christian, the true meaning of walking in the spirit, like I mentioned earlier, doesn't mean walking around with signs and wonders and praying demons out of everybody and doing miracles and healing everybody and speaking in tongues. That's not what it means. What it means is according to the statutes, walking blamelessly before the Lord. We are only in verse four, and I have way too many scriptures on the next coming verses, so we're definitely not going to make it to verse 15 today. But it is very important 
to give the importance due to these things. You see, God has now written his code. The one that we were not able to accomplish, his law has been written in our hearts and given us now the power to obey it. In fact, Jeremiah, as an example of this concept, Jeremiah in chapter 31 says in verse 33, but this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, though talking about Israel, right? But it's the same concept, declares the Lord. I would put my law within them and on their heart I will write it and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Why do I say that we can actually apply this to us? Because we are his. Though he's speaking directly to the house of Israel here, he's calling them my people. Now that they have his law written in their hearts, we know that the believer is also in this same kind of state because we have been adopted and we have become his people. They will not, verse 34, they will not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother saying, know the Lord, for they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. Isn't that the exact same thing that God promised us? Never to whore our sin against us anymore. To be given full forgiven and pardon for our sins. The context, this is one of those examples where he's speaking in context to the house of Israel, but it actually applies to the believer as well. The same thing that he's saying. Because other portions of the Bible shows us that he does the same thing with the believer and with the church. It's not, a one of, it's not one of those verses where it's directly and only to the house of Israel that we like to apply to ourselves sometimes. That is now walking by the Spirit. And we will go over some verses in Psalm 119 because what better Psalm than that one? When it comes to the commandments and delighting in the law of the Lord and walking in accordance to his statutes. I have hidden your word, I statutes, your law in my heart that I might not sin against thee, that I might not sin against you. How can a young man keep his ways pure? I will delight in thy statutes. Teach me to do your will. These are the kind of statements made in Psalm 119. This is walking in the spirit and how the believer should now walk after being made new. You see, that is the difference because walking in according to the flesh is walking only only to satisfy the selfish desires of yourself with complete disregard and utter disregard 
of the commandments and the fact that it is there's a creator in a God who commands you. Walking in accordance to the flesh is walking towards death. Walking in according to the spirit is walking towards life, eternal life. We all know that it is only the believer who's walking towards eternal life. That is walking in the spirit, walking in accordance to the spirit. Walking according to the, to the flesh only has one end of the road. There's only one tunnel. And it only leads to hell and death. That's why I'm saying the Christian cannot even be on the same road and be classified under the same group. I'm actually going to end it here in verse 8 because there's going to be way too much that we're still going to pack on these verses next time. It says verse 6, For the mind set on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the spirit is life and peace. Because the mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God. So in case you did not want to believe what I just said, Paul is telling us right now. Because the mind is set on the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. We already saw a thorough explanation of this when Paul talks about being slave to sin. This is it. He's bringing it back. He's not explaining it again because he already explained another portion of the letter. You're not even able. You don't even have the capacity. You're under involuntary tyranny and servitude to sin and you cannot serve two masters. It is impossible. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Now, this is very, absolutely very important because this does away completely with, well, what about the nice people and the good people that don't believe in God? Well, what is God going to do with those? There's a lot of good people out there. Well, I know that the Bible already tells me that there is not absolutely, there's not even one that is righteous. Not one. And now it's telling me if you are in the flesh, in other words, you haven't received Christ, you're not a believer, you haven't been redeemed, you are who you've been since you were born. You just cannot. It doesn't matter what you do. It doesn't matter what good deed you do to your standard. You will never. It is a futile attempt. You will never. God will not be pleased with your good deeds. They're meanless. They're worthless. They're filthy rags. It's harsh, but it's the truth. So you're not good.
you are in the same, we are in the same group as all of those who he has listed that will not inherit the kingdom of God. Heard a hand? Yes, sir. I was going to make a, a comment that uh, at the end of the day, there's two commandments that get us into uh, into heaven, to the kingdom of heaven. That's love God and love people. Amen. You can't separate those. You can't just love God and not love people and get in. You can't just love people and not love God and get in. Amen. That's right. Absolutely right. And that's the best summary. Just like that is the best summary for the all the bullet points given in the Ten Commandments. Because in the in those two commandments, you will fulfill the other ten. Because in order to do those two, you have to do what the other ten require. And we'll end it there today. I'll open it up to questions and comments. Amen. I loved it. I loved it. Man, praise God. What you got, G? So I know we spoke about Jesus uh, with comparing him to Job. Um, for, some, for some reason, a question I've always wondered is when Jesus went to the garden before his crucifixion and he um, I, don't, I don't, I need to know exactly the words that he said, so I'm paraphrasing. I don't know if he said, take this cup from me, or yeah. is there any other way? I don't know if he said both of those or just one of those, but um, he did. Okay. Yeah. My question is, did he not know already what was about to take place? Or was he just asking out of this pure hope? Like, he's, he, know, he already knew. So I was kind of confused on the question that he asked. I know it really doesn't pertain to the lesson, but... Just wanted to get that question out there. No, that's a great question. Um, absolutely. We know that by the very nature of Christ, the fact that he is fully God, he is truly the God man, right? He absolutely knew. He knew all things. He knew all things from the beginning. He knew all things to the end. He absolutely knew what was coming. In fact, he was making references to it way before that moment where he went to pray in Gethsemane. So... He knew the appointed time. That's why he would say in other times where they were afraid that he might be killed. He was so sure that it wasn't his time yet and he was not yet time for him to die because he knew when and how it was going to happen. So as far as Jesus knowing, 100%, it comes with his nature of being God and omniscient. And he showed us proof when he was already talking, speaking forth to that moment. That moment there shows us the interaction of well, at least two, right, of the Godhead between the Son and the Father. And it actually also shows the fact of the full humanity, that likeness of flesh that he took, up, took upon himself, it is in display there. Because remember that Jesus emptied himself and took the form of a man. What that means is that he gave up his place a full and perfect and unlimited power standing, sitting to the right of the Father where he has been from eternity past and since the beginning. And he chose to empty himself in this vessel of flesh, limiting himself 
to act subject to obedience to God and to be empowered by the Holy Spirit instead of fully acting out the powers that he has as being God himself. That's the way that he chose to do it. So he's living affected and afflicted by the weakness of humanity. That's how he can be tempted. That's how he can feel hunger. That's how he can feel sorrow. And the fact the Bible tells that he's a man of, very, of many sorrows. That's why he would weep. That So we see all of these weaknesses of man in display in him. And that's one scenario where we see that. In his, human, in his humanity, he knows what he's about to suffer. He knows the pain and the wrath that I just described and read that Paul has been describing in all these chapters. He knows the degree of that wrath that is going to be poured out on him. He knows the severity of it. He knows the father like no one else. He knows how wrathful he can be. And he is. And he is about to take all of that upon himself. So the man in him was praying out and saying, if this cup can be taken away from me, and that's why he it actually tells us that he is sweating blood at this point, right? Because of his suffering and the stress that he's under. He's suffering that stress as a man. And that's why he makes that prayer, knowing though that that's not going to happen. Because he immediately says, but your will, not mine. So that's that's what's happening there. And so what you want to pitch in? Uh, yeah, I'm just gonna say, man, that's a that's a great uh, uh, explanation there. I just want to add that it does show a couple of things for us. It's a teachable moment for us because truthfully, he did not want to do it, and that was not his will. He would he would literally say, "Your will and not my will." Yep. And so that is is a beautiful teaching moment that he, though he didn't want to do that, he submitted to the will of his father. So he was, as it says in another scripture, obedient even unto death. So he didn't want to go into it. He didn't want to do it, but he was obedient all the way unto death, even though he didn't want to. What you got, G? I guess that's where a little bit, I guess I can't use the word confusion comes into play because he is every sense of his father. But yet he had his own ideas of how he basically would have wanted to do things um that's the part where i guess I, I find myself a little bit confused because i'm like well he says not sure not my will but yours but wouldn't his will be the same as his father's not necessarily if that makes any sense that's a, there's a reason why he said that he submits to his father it's not necessarily that his will is the same. In fact, in the Old Testament, it speaks about him before he's here and he's talking about he's 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 kind of lamenting over the fact of why will he need to do this? Because the the Jews are not going to listen. They're not going to listen anyway. And then God tells him, consoles him by saying, you're basically saying your sacrifice is not just good enough for them. It'll reach out to the to the ends of the world, like to the Gentiles. Also, it'll become it'll become for everybody. But so so he thinks of these things. And he, there's another scripture where he says he was looking upon his body and he says, sacrifice these things you didn't look for, but you made a body for me. He says, well, here I am to do your will. I'm, I'm the one that's written about in the scrolls. So uh, he he does the will of his father. 
we're just giving a couple of instances where that's not necessarily where he would want it to do, uh, would want to do, but that just shows us his obedience. In fact, in Hebrews and such a, and it sounds so strange, it would say that he learned obedience through what he suffered. And so, uh, and here he is, Jesus, all knowing, omnipotent and omniscient, and yet he learned something by what he went through. And so, uh, again, I, I, that's why I say, and I can, you know, could it's just a take with a grain of salt. I feel that the entire Bible is literally giving us a look into their relationship of how the father has raised his son, Jesus. And, and so we see that for real, for real father son relationship between the two. And it's, you said that he learned obedience through suffering. Yes, through what he suffered. I didn't make that up either. As I'll pull it up in a second. What you had, Alberto? No, I was going to say that all this circles back to that great mystery, right, of the Trinity, right? And that's that's why, and I'm calling it a mystery, not because of Catholics calling it a mystery. I'm calling it a, uh, a mystery because of the fact that it's one of those things that is literally the absolute explanation to it in the sense of fully grasping and understanding the full nature of it is one of those mysteries that God has reserved to himself. We do know, we do know by his word that there's certain things that he does reserve to himself. And that's one of them. That's one of those things that we have never ever though we've had tried to make complete sense of it. We have never been able to complete make absolute 100% complete sense of it. But that is also how we know that these other beliefs or doctrines like oneness, et cetera, are not true because the Bible actually teaches you that there are, though they are one God, they are truly, 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 and in all nature, what comes with it, three different persons. That's how you can have that, that dynamic of having one person asking the other something that might seem contradictory, right? Or then saying, I submit to your will instead of mine. The only way that you can truly have that, even though you have one God, is that you truly have three distinct persons and everything that comes with that. And again, it's one of those things where all the workings of it has not been fully revealed for us to grasp. Amen. And just to show you, uh, this is actually Hebrews 5. I started uh, verse seven, it says, in the days of his flesh, he offered up both prayers and supplication with loud crying and tears to the one able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his piety. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. And having been made perfect, he became to all those who obey him the, the source of eternal salvation. Jigaji. So he is when he's asking these questions and things of that nature, he's asking it from a place of flesh is what you're saying. Like how you said, it's that the three, like father, son, and basically like the flesh itself. Um, he's asking, take this cup away from me from a place of his human, his, his humanness, I guess you could well, say. We, I mean, it, we, we say it that way, but honestly, we don't know. Um, we really don't know. We don't know. You know, all we know is what we're given there on in the Bible. Right. And so uh, it could have been the weakness of him as a human being. Or it may have just been him, just him as, as who he is. 
and uh, following everything. Now we know because of things that he said later on, or I guess before this particular point, that uh, that there are things that he was still learning from his father. Because he said, when I returned to my father, he would show me even greater things. So he was still learning things. So uh, it, it truly is. It truly does appear to be a father and son relationship. And and uh, and we and we're. I'm thankful that they 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 give us these little looks into it. But we can't go any further than that. All we know is what is what it told us. That's it. Yeah, and and the reason one of the reasons why we say that the his humanity is there in display is because of the signs that we see that we can actually relate to, right? Because it tells us that he was on a very very deep stress. We know that we as human do feel deep stress, though we might not necessarily hear the Bible tell us about God being stressed um and we see where he is bleeding and we know i mean we god is a spirit he's the bible is so told us that he's not a man so god can't bleed like us but we see christ in that moment bleeding and suffering and stress these are all signs that we can relate to because we can actually feel these things in our humanity that's where the whole point of uh, the whole thought of his humanity being displayed there comes from that, right? Because we see those signs and we see him suffering as he's asking these things like a man also would suffer. But other than that, we like we can't, right? We, we, we can't put in extra or additional ideas into that. Amen. Amen. I agree with Alberto. I, I mean, it's, it's just, there's just certain things that, as Alberto said, it's just for them. They may be, we may know later, you know, he may reveal it to us later for whatever reason, but some things are just for him, but I'm just thankful that we got to see them, that, we're, that they're documented for us. That's right. Amen. And it's great that it, it's great that that's there for us in that he is Jesus Christ, the son of God, and he was denied his request. Hmm. That's good for us to know. That's good for us to see that because we know God loves him. Oh, yeah. You know what I mean? So it's good for us <laughs> to see that, that it happens like that. You know what I mean? Yep. But we know even though even though that request was denied, according to this Hebrews here, he was hurt is what yeah. it said. He, he definitely was hurt because of it, because he's uh, he's a pious person. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace.